everyone, I hope you're having an awesome day and thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Encrypted. In this episode, we speak to Talal Tabba of Jibril Network. We discuss what Jibril Network is, how tokens issued on Ethereum can be regulator friendly, the value of enterprise adoption, and also how to sell to enterprises. We also welcome a new guest host joining me on the show today. We hope you enjoy this as much as we did. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this new episode of Encrypted. My name is Ahmed Al-Balaghi, and I'm coming to you live from Area 2071. And today we have a new person joining us as a, a co-host. He goes by the name of Nick Watson. For this episode, he'll be our guest host, I guess. Say hello, Nick. Hi. How are you doing? Very good. How are you? I'm all right, thank you. I'm just loving this coffee. First time I've had, I think, the white latte, whatever it is. And today as well, we also have another special guest, a very old friend as well in the crypto space, Talal Tabba. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Pleasure being on the show. It's awesome having you, Talal. So before we sort of go into Gibral and talk a bit about what, what we really want to talk about in this episode, which is enterprise, I want to hear a bit about yourself, explain to the, our listeners who you are, what you've been doing before crypto. Great. Well, uh, my name is Talal Tabba. I'm one of the co-founders and COO of uh, Jibril Network. So I bo- was born and raised in Jordan, in Amman. Uh, moved to the US to study industrial engineering at Purdue University. That's when I first heard of Bitcoin. But then I kind of moved away from the engineering part and went more into finance. I worked with PwC. Through PwC, we had consulted for a member of the Royal Saudi family. During my time with him, I, so we spent several projects with the Saudi prince. Then he convinced PwC to have me jump ship. So I moved to Saudi full time. I lived there for about two and a half years. It was a very interesting part of my career. So basically they had lots of assets under management. They were more into business rather than politics. But basically I'd convinced them to allocate a portion of their alternative investments in Bitcoin. That was about 2015. It uh, wasn't as straightforward as doing it today, uh, even though technically today you have Bit Oasis in the Middle East, yeah. not many other options. But yeah, so I, during my time at Saudi, as you can imagine, Saudi is not as lively as Dubai, so you end up with a lot of free time. Yeah. Uh, that's when I started really reading about crypto, blockchain, used to write, uh, read a couple of white papers a day. Then I came up with the idea, so with, with the Saudi prince, I had sold a couple of his aircrafts. And during that process, I realized that selling an aircraft is one of the most tedious jobs. Basically, you have to get documents verified from so many different entities. The history of the aircraft, whether it's maintenance records, the pilots, the flight logs, this is very sensitive information that is scattered. So I thought, all right, maybe that could be something that you could do on chain. So I started off doing that idea. And then uh, Yazan, Jibril's CEO, who I know from middle school, I heard of Jibril and his idea, which at the time was called Hawala. I was like, yeah, I think Yazan has a better idea than I do. Aircraft records is, is nice, but it's not as interesting as what Yazan wanted to do. So basically, I dropped the aircraft registry. I still think it's a good idea, but Jibril is definitely more interesting. Before we go into Jibril, why did you get this, this man from the Royal Saudi family to actually buy Bitcoin? What convinced you that Bitcoin was actually a good, good asset to, to buy? Good question. So basically, this guy was, uh, he had inherited several companies from his dad, and all of them were very traditional. So construction, insurance, aviation, services, and he wanted to be part of this new digital economy. So the lower end of the spectrum in terms of risk would have obviously been e-commerce, etc. But he wanted to venture out into something that is contrarian, let's say. I think Bitcoin now is not considered contrarian, but at the time it was definitely considered to be something that's on the edges. So we started off with a small position. He really liked the fact that it was independent from the traditional financial system. If you send a wire transfer from country A to country B, It goes through several several intermediaries, and each intermediary has the right to either block it, has the right to ask you why it's going there. So basically, the the independence that Bitcoins allows you to do in terms of moving money around, and this was actually a point that me and Nick were discussing earlier about the use case of Bitcoin today with with flight capital and other 
other means of moving capital around. This was something that he found very interesting. So that's when so, we started building a position. I, I, I also want to know then, was it him that brought up, oh, let's explore Bitcoin, or was it you that brought it up? And if it was you, what, you know, how did you discover it? Actually, it's a pretty interesting story. So my brother was uh, studying at Bentley University. One of his professors, a visiting professor, is called Bruce Fenton. He's one of the Bruce. thought... Yes. Oh. <laughs> so Bruce actually gave everyone in class like 0.1 or 0.01 of a Bitcoin. They had them, they had e he had each student open up a wallet on blockchain.info and basically put a slight Bitcoin, slight amount of Bitcoin in there. And my brother was like, yeah, by the way, I'm doing this. You know, I mentioned, I remember you were interested in this back in the day, but you never really acted on it. So that's how I, again, started getting into it. And I suggested it to Prince Abdullah. Then he started reading about it again. And I guess All right. that's, that's how it started. Good, good to see that Bruce is somehow involved in this picture. <laughs> All right. And wait, how about Eunuch? We never got round to... Yeah, so I'm the managing director of a company called Nasaba. It's a business facilitation company. So uh, since the day we were incepted, we are focused on helping normally Series A, mid-tier type companies uh, either commercialize, so get new clients or find partners in a region that they want to operate, or we help them raise capital. We've done a bunch of blockchain raises here in the region, mainly Series A and above and obviously done some work with placing some blockchain companies into enterprises in the region. But our, our remit really is in the enterprise space. That's where I spend almost 99.99% of my time. Great. And how did you discover, what was your um, sort of flipping moment in, in the Bitcoin and blockchain world? I would, I would say probably around about 2016, when we had several enterprise type use cases coming into Vogue, in different spaces, we were like, okay, there's actually some, some trajectory with the technology itself. Not necessarily huge amounts of capital being raised, but that's what started to pique my interest. And then I was obviously in 20, yeah, actually 2016, looking at projects coming up and started to notice Neo was coming up online and a, lot, a few ICOs, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so I'm not a Bitcoin or Ethereum guy. I was never really getting in that early, but I was getting in when the enterprise use cases started to come on board. So uh, those good old days. So uh, that, that was my flippening when it came into the crypto space. But blockchain before that, crypto, I'm a little bit of a late bloomer. Okay. Interesting word, the flippening. I remember when we were at like the top of the hype, people were saying that uh, Ethereum is going to beat Bitcoin in terms of crypto market cap dominance. <laughs> and then it serves as a reminder that Bitcoin has always been king and it probably will be for the foreseeable future. Yeah, when we get into the discussion later about the uh, enterprise usability of Bitcoin, we're probably going to ruffle a few feathers, I believe. <laughs> we'll so we're going to see. We'll see. We'll see. I wish we had a maximalist on, on board with us for this episode. Yeah, anyway, later. It. Later. <laughs> what we're going to say it makes perfect sense. It doesn't mean it's not capable of being a, a real consumer product. No, absolutely. So this is what we, we were really interested in Gibral about was, so I came across Talal, was it um, just before the hype? Yeah. Um, in, in Dubai and learned a bit more about Gibral, helped Gibral um, in many different ways. And it's funnily enough, after what's eight months of doing this podcast, finally have you on um, formally, I guess. So tell us a bit more about the project, what the name means. Of course, not many people understand what that is. And yeah, just uh, I do have a lot of questions that I'd like to, <laughs> to have answered as well. Looking forward to that. Looking forward so, to yeah. that. All right, so as I mentioned, Yezen, co-founder and CEO, uh, came up with the idea. It was initially called Hawala. And if anyone has worked long enough in the Middle East, they know that Hawala is the black market system that people use to send money abroad because the money exchange shops are insanely expensive and they charge an arm and a leg. So Hawala is where this person, institution, whatever you want to call it, comes to your house, picks up cash, and delivers it to the doorstep of your relative, of your family, uh, back home. Their fees are much more affordable, and they also work independent of systems such as SWIFT. So if you look at UAE to Myanmar, you can't send a wire transfer because Myanmar is not part of the SWIFT network. Yet you have people from Myanmar working in the UAE. How do they send money? 
well, you have one entity which operates as a money exchange shop, but again, they charge insane fees. So people resort to Hawala. So yeah. Yazan wanted to create a Hawala system that was through crypto. And we realized that crypto is a bit too volatile to be a unit of measure, mm -hmm. which is necessary if you want to send money back home. So let's say I had 1,000 dirhams, transferred them into Ether. I sent them to Jordan, Philippines, etc. Mm -hmm. If Ether drops while that transaction is taking place, it's probably a lot worse than the um, exchange fees. And the other element is that people sending money back home from mostly blue-collar jobs aren't interested in speculation. They're interested in sending money back home to their families because they've had to earn it the hard way by working in, in the GCC. Yeah. So then the idea of Jibril came about. And the idea of Jibril, so the name Jibril is inspired from Jibril, Malik uh, al-Malaike, or Gabriel, God's messenger. And God's messenger is the connector of heaven and earth. We want to connect the traditional economy Earth with the crypto or digital economy, which can be considered the heavens, I guess. The idea. That's the first time I've ever heard that the crypto is associated with heavens, as in just as in analogy, it's uh, really interesting. Yeah, and I guess we <laughs> avoided using the exact name Jibril because then you might be politically incorrect. And, and we basically wanted to make sure that we're ne neutral and not associated with any geography, religion, etc. Uh, actually, Jibril is the name in Arabic, Aramaic, and Hebrew, so it was, I guess, well thought out from Yazan, and, a, and an upgrade from Hawala. Yeah, absolutely. But I just want to jump on the Hawala stuff. That's um, pure analog noded network. Mm. It's a pure trust-based system. So it, it's, it's crazy how it's the perfect fit for uh, just being digitized. Yeah, and it works like a charm, huh? People get money in and out of the country very efficiently. Yeah, I agree. Hopefully it'll be more efficient with Bitcoin these days, right? So I guess <laughs> that's something that's already happening. Okay. And it's probably the main use case for Bitcoin, mm -hmm. at least at the moment. Yeah. Okay. And so then tell us, so you, you mentioned a bit about Gibral. What What are you guys actually trying to solve? using, um, you know, you migrate from this sort of, what is it, aircraft, and then using a bit of Yazan's, your co-founder's idea. What has it, what, what has it been trying to solve and what has it okay. become over the journey? So the aircraft idea was pure private blockchain. It, it's not really uh, relevant to the financial industry. It's more a verification of documents from several parties. Gibral is a whole new thing where we try to reinvent the way traditional finance works, or specific processes within traditional finance. Uh, we were very lucky to have hired a very smart guy that asks a lot of questions. His name is Ala, he works in our team in New York. And he asked me this question a couple of weeks ago and helped me try to formulate the proper narrative. So we have three questions, why, what, and how. So why is we want to reinvent traditional finance uh, using blockchain. What do we want to do? We want to make markets more efficient. Those markets mainly are real estate, debt, and commodities. By doing so, you, you democratize access to those markets. And how you basically act as, you, you have software act as a link between the economy and the users. You can also have smart contracts automating processes such as the Sukuk. Finally, that allows you to have a transparent uh, secondary market for assets that are currently liquid due to the analog OTC nature of trading. Okay. Uh, so for example, if you look at US Treasury bills, which is considered, let's say, the most popular debt instrument globally, 80% mm -hmm. of US T-bills are still traded over the phone. If you look at Dubai real estate, it's still extremely analog and goes through a real estate agent and a coviancer. I'm not sure how to pronounce that word, but I think Nick can help us on I didn't that. understand the word you said. <laughs> yeah, so obviously I butchered that. But yeah, basically it happens through intermediaries as opposed to a digital system, whereas the equities market, I believe, has matured significantly more than that. All right, yeah. And so then, okay, so you, you mentioned a lot about really trying to bring about all this sort of seamless experiences in traditional finance and basically, in a way, digitizing that, that process. So, sort of, 
there's been, I remember, a couple of slight changes from sort of the white paper till now and how the website and the touch and feel of Gibral is currently. It looks like you're catering a lot towards enterprise. You have sort of compliant stable coins, um, solutions as well. I, I just want to know exactly, A, what are you trying to actually solve for these enterprises? And I assume that they are financial enterprises. And B, what are, how do these compliant stable coins actually come into the whole picture? Okay, so first of all, if you've read our, if you've looked at our white paper recently, or any time really, there is what's called the guarantor. The guarantor is the holder of the traditional financial assets. And what we describe as criders or crypto depository receipts are tethered assets that replicate or mimic the underlying asset. So in each asset, you have a different guarantor or a licensed institution that's allowed to legally hold that asset. Let's take cash, for example, because it was the first stable or first type of crider, first type of crypto depository receipt that we launched. With cash, you have cash sitting with a licensed financial institution, in this case, a bank. And then you have an on-chain token that represents that cash. So the best way to think about it is it's as if it's your uh, online banking account. So you link digital asset that's in the form of an ERC-20 token with your cash in the bank. What's the difference between that and Tether? Pretty much, okay, so this is, this is something that we get asked yeah. a lot. And although they are uh, conceptually both virtual dollars, yeah. they are architecturally very different. Okay. So USDT is a permissionless system where anyone in the world can open up wallet and start transacting over the Omni protocol. In our case, every Jcash holder or user needs to be whitelisted or goes through the relevant KYC and AML checks. So it's like a permissioned stablecoin. Mm -hmm. Similar. J Jcash is essentially the on-chain representation of, of the cash on the, the bank. bank. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so why, why is this relevant? Why is this important? So if you look at our most, let's say, our biggest enterprise achievement to date was the Hilal Bank Sukuk. We yeah. basically conducted... What, what is Sukuk? Just for those who don't great. know. Okay. So Sukuk is a form of Islamic debt mm -hmm. that is issued from regulated financial Islamic institutions to raise capital. And Sukuk can be... So without getting into the old the Sharia definitions, but a Sukuk can be based on murabaha, can be based on uh, s several, di several different Sharia compliant yeah. uh, methods. What we did is was a secondary market transaction. So... Again, I want to link this to Jcash. Yeah. If, if I went to Al-Hilal Bank and I told them, listen, we want to do your Sukuk on a blockchain system and have the payout of your Sukuk happen in USDT, Tether. They were like, okay, who can access Tether? I would have told them basically everyone and their mom can get online and buy Tether. Their compliance would have immediately shut it down because as a bank, you need to have the right to freeze the right to seize, and the right to know every single counterparty. Yeah. That is possible with Jcash, yet it's not possible with USDT. Okay. So basically, the, the Hilal Bank Sukuk, the Islamic debt instrument, is denominated in US dollars. Its profit payments are in US dollars. But then again, if I wanted to do it using normal wire IBAN transfers, that would have defeated the purpose. Because what's the benefit of doing Sukuk on a blockchain? couple of things, one of them being automation, the automation of profit payments. Today, the way that profit payments happen for any debt instrument is somewhat manual. It depends on how technologically advanced the bank is. But at the end of the day, a wire transfer has to go from the bank to the holder of that security as a form of profit payment. Yeah. So if every time my smart contract is going to say, all right, Nick is owed $100,000, Ahmed is owned $2,000, and then someone has to manually do that wire transfer, then becomes pointless. So always when there's interaction between what's off-chain and on-chain, usually comes with inefficiency and manual intervention. So the, the idea is basically then that the Jcash that would be rewarded back to those who have invested, they could then use that Jcash to either redeem the dollars or use that to do on whatever they want, depending on who actually accepts Jcash as a form of payment. Yes. But it has to be used, it has to actually have enterprise adoption 
rather than Al Halal Bank actually being the only ones, there actually have to be other banks, I assume, to get onboarded on this so that it actually has real value. There is a Syrian saying that says means stretch your legs as much as your blanket goes. So if you... So like, like the blankets English, over there. The English, <laughs> the, English, the English equivalent would be don't bite more than you can chew. Okay. So to think that Jcash is going to be the de facto USD payment for retail outlets and for money transfers over the world is... Is, uh, would be delusional, right? Yeah, you I have, have tokens, bro. Like, uh, <laughs> you can it redeem them. <laughs> you can, no. So, Jcash. How do you redeem them, though? How do you get your Jcash you, out? You, you redeem them through us, okay. through Gibral. Gibral is a licensed financial intermediary. If you have 1,000 JUSD, you can withdraw that JUSD into your bank account. Okay. Or you can go back into Through crypto. the app? Through, through the app, yeah. through Gibral? Yes. They, have to call, so, they have to call you, or they just do it through the mobile app itself? Good question. So, Actually, this is one of the things that we're enabling within the wallet. So I guess, thank you for that question, Nick, because it allows me to transition into our products. Um, so Jcash, as a standalone product, isn't something that we've tried to market, isn't something that we've pushed, because we want to embed it into the wallet. So the J Wallet, I urge everyone to go to jwallet.network, try out the web, Android, or iOS version. It's very intuitive user interface, but it still doesn't have features that will allow it to acquire users aggressively or allow us to market it in an aggressive manner. So basically, uh, from a technology build-out point of view, we created a very solid base, and now we're adding features to that. So Jcash will be part of the Jwallet. You will be able to deposit cash and withdraw cash using the Jwallet in the form of, of JUSD or hopefully soon J-A-E-D. So that, that, that so last one is... a big smile on my face. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, you'll be able to do in-app trading. So inside the J-Wallet, you'll be able to trade crypto. Okay, so the next question is, inside the wallet, can you go from Jcash into alternative tokens or coins? Okay, this is, this is something that is also being built. So for example, once we have Sukuk, once we have real estate, once we have commodities, in the form of tokens, you'd be able to move from Ethereum to, for example, a piece of real estate or to... So in the wallet, there'd be two sections, one for crypto assets, one for crypto depository receipts, which is the tokenized assets. And yeah, that's all part of our J-Wallet build-out. I think that's... Yeah. So J-Wallet right now is a holding mechanism. You can just see your bank account. And then you can call you guys up and get your money out if you want. No, so today there's two separate things. The J Wallet is an Ethereum-based wallet. Jcash.network is where you can deal with JUSD and okay. do the withdrawals. Uh, but eventually we want to dissolve Jcash into the J Wallet because people don't want to access two. too many different apps. They just want to have one stop shop to do basically everything. Yeah, and so... You, you guys did an ICO, obviously, you have a token, and that which is called JNT. What is the use case of JNT in all of this? Okay, so today, in order to do a Jcash transfer, you need JNT to access our system. Meaning, if you have Ether and you want to move to JUSD, you, you do need to have JNT balance in order to do that. You pay off your fees in JNT. This is obviously something that gets asked quite a lot. Why don't you use Ether? Why don't you use... Uh, it's easier know. to use Ether or sense, right? Just, you know. All right. So as someone that works in fintech or is involved in the fintech space, you should very much acknowledge that compliance is an area where financial institutions are not willing to compromise. Mm -hmm. Whenever you speak to ADGM, DFSA, ESCA, any regulator, they'll tell you with fintech, we are flexible, but do not touch the AML side. Yeah. So if I'm using Ether as a form of gas or fees, Anyone in the world can hold Ether. There is absolutely no ability to write to freeze, write to seize, or have known counterparties. So a regulated bank in the UAE wouldn't be able to touch Ether at the moment, but they would be able to use, for example, a token that has compliance baked in it, where you can have the right to seize or freeze. So is JNT a controlled cryptocurrency yes, yes. built on the Ethereum network? Yes, it is. We, at Gibraltar, we've always been upfront about the fact that we are a permissioned system built on a public blockchain. People always, 
people always make the misconception, make the misconception that it's public permissionless or private permissioned. You could have public yet permissioned. And this is what Jibril is. Where we work on public net Ethereum, but we are a permissioned system. And that's the only way to, to be able to work with enterprise. And so Nick, at least for now. Yeah, yeah. So Nick, with, with your experiences with enterprise adoption, how is this approach? Yay, nay, like <laughs> Yay, because he's um he's building reg tech. So he's okay. building tech that's what is reg tech for those re regulator know. tech. So it's technology that helps regulators. First and foremost, when you do reg tech, you can try and push the barriers of changing regulations. That's the whole idea behind what's going on with fintech. But the most crucial part is that you stay in line with their capacity to keep up with you. You push the boundaries so far, but you don't push them so far that you're outside of it, like Bitcoin, for example, or Ethereum or Ether. So stay within it. And, and of course, compliance first, AML first, KYC first. If you start with those principles, then you basically save yourself a hell of amount of time later on. I'm agreed with Nick, but going back to your point of why would you have a token? So today we are building on public net Ethereum. Yeah. But as I'm sure you're aware, even though Ethereum is the world's most mature smart contract blockchain, it does have some limitations, some systemic risks. If you've heard of Infura, Infura, Infura is basically, it has 95% or more of market share. It's API access to Ethereum. It's completely free. It is done by consensus. And for those of you who don't know consensus, they call themselves a boutique... Uh, Advisory, consultant, integrator. Exactly. Any buzzword you have. They're raising $200 million as well. They need it. <laughs> so basically, Infura is hosted on Amazon Web Services. And it's a free service given to pretty much every dApp in the world. Uh, or every dApp built on Ethereum. So these dApps built on Ethereum use Infura and they assume it's like public welfare. So today when you drive on the UAE streets, the UAE government had built those streets. All right, and you pay VAT, you contribute to the economy, so you have the right to use those roads. Whereas Infura, everyone uses Infura on consensus's cost. So if you think from a sustainability point of view, this is something that you need to factor into your costs, which yeah. is why at Gibral, we have our own nodes. It's something that we use to power our wallet, our block explorer, so we don't use Infura at the moment. But I guess the, the point that I was making here is that Ethereum does have systemic risk. Infura is just one of them. And eventually, we will build our own chain. But it wouldn't have been a wise decision to do that now. Uh, I think this is something that our CTO and co-founder Victor suggested, and, and we wholeheartedly agreed with him, is today you don't even know which functionalities are useful, which limitations are bad. I think... If you're going to build a blockchain for derivatives, it would be very different from a blockchain for aircraft registry, for example. Yeah. So before we build our own chain, we need to properly evaluate which features are a must. Yeah, I guess. And, and we do have uh, developers in our team that do R&D on that front. Mm -hmm. So our smart contracts, we try to replicate on several other blockchains to see how it works. We've spoken to pretty much every protocol out there. I'm going to ask questions that are probably not relevant to the podcast. Okay. I can, oh, you know, I'll fucking ask it and get it out afterwards. Um, <laughs> okay. Don't answer it because how many transactions are happening right now on the network? On the Jibril? Yeah, on Jibril's Gibril, network. Not much. Yeah, okay. So basically you have the Al-Halal Bank project. You have users holding wallets with their payouts every every so often. Yeah. All going all right? Everything yes. is good? So actually with the Hilal Bank deal, the way that we initially pitched to Hilal Bank was very different from how it ended up being. And that was primarily because of the compliance and risk department's concerns. So we had to compromise. We initially wanted to do a primary issuance on-chain. We ended up doing a secondary market transaction. We wanted to have the token transferable between whitelisted addresses we had to have the token or the security held until maturity. So actually, on public net Ethereum, if you look up JSUKUK, you can see the profit payout. The first one, I believe, happened on 19th of March, and that happened uh, without any issues. So again, 
Al-Hilal Bank's deal, it was a live implementation, but it was one with significant amount of restrictions, which is why in our books, we believe it's just a first step. So if I wanted to convince a bank to do a full primary issuance, they're like, yeah, let's do something that's a bit low risk so that our team, our treasury operations can get acquainted with what blockchain is, what smart contracts are, how do, what does it automate. So we're actually in touch with Al-Hilal and several other issuers on, on um, doing that. The, the issue with uh, the primary issuance was the fact that it would be a pure digital asset and having no basis in the physical world. Okay, so this is a loaded question. The secondary I, market, you've already got the assets sitting in some sort of custody. SPV, exactly. Yeah. So if you know a company called Nevara, uh, based in the UK, yes. London Stock Exchange, this yeah. just led their round. Uh, they're extremely smart and very pragmatic. They just did the world's first regulated STO yeah. uh, with a company 2030. called 2030. Yeah. Exactly. So what they've convinced the FCA to do is to have the concept of self-custody. Today, pretty much every security in the world sits in Belgium. And Euroclear has everyone by the... I'll let you finish the, <laughs> the rest of that sentence. But they have pretty much strong control over the over financial markets. That's because of their reach, because of the critical mass that they've reached. And today you could reinvent that by doing a primary issuance on-chain. But what's been very supportive in our case is that Sharia scholars are big fans of doing a fully digital asset issuance. Because what you could do is that you could link the security directly with an underlying asset. If you do it on-chain, you could have the sequential order of all right, I issued 100 million worth of debt. These are the assets backing it up. As opposed to today, you having to trust. If you go down that black hole, you'll never find the answer. Uh, I've applied to Sharia compliant loans at six institutions in the UAE. I will not name them, but I've asked which Sharia compliant commodities, assets, etc., are backing up my loan. And you just get rerouted from one department to the other. Yeah. Okay. Now, <laughs> let's not go deeper on that one. Let's, yeah, probably better not to. Okay, so w when we okay, look at this as a, uh, as a really interesting example of actually bringing up use cases in enterprise and for enterprise, have you seen any others like that have sort of come about in this region where, you know, enterprise is actually coming up with, you know, some projects, it could be a POC or it could be something already in full production. Or is this, while well, we're still scratching the surface, what's going on, guys? Yeah, we're trying to find the I think everybody's trying to find the surface <laughs> right now and know what to pick at. Let me ask one question then. Before we jump straight into the yeah. examples or whatever, what is enterprise to you? That's good, a good question. Good question. So, I guess I'm not too big on the distinction between... Uh, my, the distinction that I have to make is private and public sector. But I'm not too big on differentiating between B2C and B2B because enterprise could be a group of customers that act in a specific manner, uh, informal organization. Uh, that for me is enterprise. It doesn't have to have a commercial register and making sure they have tax filings, etc. I mean, some of the world's biggest crypto exchanges don't have commercial registers, yet you can't classify those as normal customers. They are enterprise. So what I would be careful in, in classifying is the difference between private and public sector as opposed to enterprise versus retail. Because those lines are a bit blurred. I know you have a strong opinion towards that. You work with retail quite a bit. Uh, sorry, enterprise. Yeah. No, no, my, my, my opinion on, on enterprise is purely a group of let's say, individuals that represent the same end goal, which could be a company or could be a name of something or a convention or whatever, convention being a, a structure or something, and they all work towards that common goal, right? That's an enterprise type use case. So it could be a... That's an efficient enterprise. <laughs> <laughs> so you, obviously you have highly inefficient enterprises as well, but I think when you look at a consumer, it's all about themselves, them, and a very small component of their life. When you look at an enterprise, not just big, but medium and even small, um, they're all working to a singular common goal, ideally, if they're managed correctly, and they're all aiming for a profit motive. Most of the case, obviously, 
charities and stuff are not doing that, but they've all got a, a single common goal they all work towards, a vision and mission. Whereas your vision, my vision, my wife's vision, Ahmed's vision is very, very different according to our personal traits. So that's, the, that's why I always like to ask the question, what does enterprise mean to someone? Because it, it normally always ends up being a different position based on where they are and the people they work with. So yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good answer. Hey, I mean, government is an enterprise, just maybe not highly efficient. Or a different type of enterprise. Yeah, yeah good. Ahmed, you got one? I just feel like they're like slow beasts. That's, that's how I envisage them to be. You know, I've, got, I've, I've got, got, got to put a point to this one. I've worked with a lot of startups and a lot of mid-sized companies, yeah. and I've worked with behemoths. Yeah. And um, when you talk to, to, let's say, younger people that are in their startups or in their small to mid-sized growth stage, you know, they've got 50 employees, 100 employees. When you get to 50 employees or 100 employees, your whole perspective on how business life completely changes because then when you look at what Satya Nadella and all those big CEOs of multi-billion dollar companies are doing and you think that that one person is heading the whole snake and you try to think about how they push their vision down all those layers and then when you've got a 50 person company and you try to push your vision down 50 people and the, the single layers you might have you realize the job they must have so when they get kicked in the proverbial positioning on the internet you're thinking that's probably not fair because to get that layered to all those countries and all those different places, whew, Man, we're it's crazy. And we're feeling that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we, yeah. we've done it. We've been we've been to three hundred employees and back. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a it's a it's it's a, an interesting position to be in when you have to manage a lot of people, and then you see these billion dollar companies. So then you've got governments that don't have a profit motive. They have a a social mandate or a, yeah. a, a steadying mandate. So I, I think it's good, it's good conversation to have about what is enterprise because I think it will impact, it explains why Dribbler has gone the way they are going and why we do what we do mm. and why enterprise I think is absolutely the key to blockchain. Consumer adoption is important, but it will not get adopted until the enterprises adopt it. But then wouldn't, if, for example, you had a very successful, let's say, decentralized application and it managed to gain a real widespread adoption, isn't that the, isn't that a real sort of, you know, isn't that a viable way of how blockchain-related apps could actually gain so, adoption? So, technically, Just what you're saying is... create an awesome application. You're talking about creating an awesome application. Okay, where is it? It's not here yet, but it's we don't have yet. anything. But what is going we to create that critical mass is adoption by enterprise that will, because there's big money, yeah. it's big ideas, it's a, a, an aggressive profit motive against 100 people, 1,000 people, hundreds of thousands of people, or business to businesses, but these people are serviced by that enterprise. Yeah. And it has to work internally for it to work externally. Look, even though I'd love to agree with the dreamy decentralization <laughs> yeah. part, I have to agree with Nick. Yeah. And I think after this example, you'd agree as well. Binance, right? They have millions of users. Yeah. Do you think people would have traded crypto as much as they've done in the past couple of years if it wasn't for Coinbase, Binance, Kraken, etc.? These are enterprises that made it a lot easier to trade every type of coin. Uh, we did have a lot of coins back in 2013 and 14 after uh, they came up with the concept of ICO. I think forgot what the first one was. It was by a guy called J.R. Willett. Okay. And he came up with the first ICO mm -hmm. that wasn't traded much because yeah. there was no enterprise facilitating the trade. So I'm, so I'm just playing devil's advocate here in, on the capacity of... So looking at Binance and Coinbase, when I think of enterprise, I don't think of Binance and Coinbase. Uh, they are, you know, growth startups, you no. know. Oh, they are rapidly growing and they've sort of built solid foundations in which they have millions of customers, but they are not known to the wider marketplace and the world, right? So they, 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 they know the bigger companies. It's not like, you know, for example, London Stock Exchange or the New York Stock Exchange. Okay, maybe the Inter ICE, they've rele they're releasing back very soon, but... You know, the, the, the new players that have come out that have given a service and they've just become bigger, right? But 
again, they're not actually that big when you compare them to traditional enterprises or these behemoths that you, you were talking about earlier, Nick. Which is why, right? Nick's, which is why Nick's question on what is enterprise yeah. important. Coinbase had $560 million in revenue, and that was 60% below budget. Whereas you have, I don't know, unicorn companies, co company with more, a billion, more than a billion dollar in... Yeah, I, I completely agree with you that they are considered startups when you look on the broader scale of things. Yeah. The projection of Coinbase for a year was a billion and they missed it by 60%, whereas Aramco makes more than a billion per day. Yeah. So it's all about context. Yeah. <clears throat> let's just, okay, let's throw this out there, right? The internet was founded by DARPANET. Okay, we had a little joke about this earlier. Um, so DARPANET, obviously, if you go Google it, you can find out what it was. It then became what is known as the internet, but that only happened after it was adopted by very large research institutions in the United States that had a problem with communicating between researchers yeah. and, and developers and, and everybody inside the organization. I'm not an expert on DARPANET, but just to bring it I up. I think the first email that was communicated overseas between university in China and university in America. Yeah, you don't think you were born yeah, I wasn't born then, yeah, but sorry. I think I was still... That was a low blow. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. I still remember what's it called, dial-up. That's the, the worst technology I can remember, but it's okay. Keep going. Actually, dial-up is very interesting because it fits into something called technological infrastructure inversion. People use existing infrastructure to push new technology. Yes, so I, I've read about this concept. DSL, or sorry, dial-up, yeah. used to use telephone lines, which were initially created for telephones mm. to move what's now called the internet. When cars first came out, they used to use sand or gravel roads, unpaved roads. And then only then they came up with basically asphalt, where a car would operate efficiently. Internet communication now obviously has significantly better infrastructure than telephone lines. So the technology is there, the infrastructure is not there. And then after a certain point of time, people realize like, oh crap, we need to change the infrastructure. Or the inter infrastructure matures to match the technology. Yeah. And you have to also look at the fact that enterprises are willing to invest money into an idea because of the potential cost saving or the profit motive, so creating more revenue. So it might cost a million dollars to implement this thing, but it's going to save me a million dollars a year going forwards and create other efficiencies and blah, blah, blah. So they can afford to do that. So therefore, they'll take on what is, let's say, a frictional technology just because of the potential high gains, which is the profit motive, right? Uh, so the okay. internet was one. So you had DARPA, they could pour millions into creating this interconnected network where researchers could talk to each other because that might create efficiencies without having to fly by aircraft, right? And it might save them millions of dollars a year in, in flights and conventions and whatever would go on back in the 1970s and 80s. Then you had Berners-Lee come in and do WWW, which was the World Wide Web, which was a cut-down, simplified version with a GUI attached and a much better way to in, in, interface. And of course, that's what then took traction. But it was an enterprise tool that somebody took and said, how can we make this available for the masses? And then it went and it had all that stickiness removed from the base. E-commerce, people don't realize that e-commerce was a business tool. That's why it's called electronic commerce. It was for entities, commerce entities, to do business with each other. So it would have been, for example, uh, electronic data interchange is what it was used for in the beginning, or electronic funds transfer. For, from business to business, this then became something that was invested in because it, it was digital. It reduced the cost of sending money and talking between businesses, which created less cost for a company and more profit. And then it became a World Wide Web interface to buying stuff. But it wasn't called e-shopping. It was still called e-commerce. People don't realize the context that that, that is a, a business to business product that's now gone main scale yeah. and is still considered, but it's considered a consumer product. I it's guess business is talking to consumers, though. It was even like, for example, just Alibaba as well. They started off with B2B, but the, the reason why they got so big was B2C. Yeah. So they but they got yeah. rid of all the inefficiencies of those industries mm. because those industries needed it. They need that cost saving. If you want to go buy stuff in China, Literally, as a, as a wholesale merchant in the UK, you had to fly to a trade show and then go look at that marketplace, which is basically a physical souk. Yeah. In this market, a souk or a physical market. Now you just go on Alibaba. Yeah. As a merchant, you would do that. That's why you, if you go on Alibaba, so you still see you've got to buy 50 of this as a minimum to get an order. 
right? Of course, that, then... that didn't actually, that wasn't the profitable product of Alibaba. It was the BTC Amazon that they've implemented called Taobao. Yeah. In China, that was the... So, okay, before we wrap up, because we've already taken a bit too long for on this um, episode, how can in this region get more enterprises to work with this new thing to actually not just do POCs, but actually put, go into full production. Do you want to go first or me? Uh, I have an opinion on uh, <laughs> I'd the like, way companies are run. I'd like to hear you talk about it first because we have, if, if we had the full answer, I would probably been pitching and not on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, so we spent a lot of time working with CIOs and CTOs and God knows whatever new job titles are coming out. You've got chief digital officers now. Almost all of them, uh, their main problem is finding a real use case and then pitching it to the board. They, they do not have a problem spending a million dollars on a firewall that's branded by HP, but they will have a big problem spending $50,000 on a POC on a technology that will not guarantee a outcome. Okay. So culturally, that means that the person responsible for implementation of new technology has to understand the concept of new business modeling. What is the value of this technology is going to provide us? And at the same time, they need to be able to pitch that idea and vision to the board, which is traditionally the CEO and the board members, because it will be a risky technology. They need to get buy-in from the higher levels. Yeah. So if it exposes risk, it's a business decision. And if it's something that is not unknown and has been done in the past by the procurement team or it fits into one of those molds, it, there's a, all hell breaks loose. And this basically means the person responsible for technology in a business, whether that is the IT director who just basically brings technology in to fix things in the company, or if it's the chief technology officer who's building the products that will be seen within the business and external or whatever, if it's the clients who are consumers or business, it's very important that they change their culture, and that means a big change of culture inside the organization too. And this is the big problem, and I'm sure Talal's gonna be like, <laughs> frustrated with everything he's had to do. <laughs> I do agree with that, yeah. I do agree with that, but one, one thing to add is that humans will always function like humans. So if you align your incentives with whoever you're pitching to, you have a much better chance of survival, basically. If I'm pitching to the treasury team and I want to make it easier for them to raise capital, I need to make sure that, I, that my messaging is correct. My solution helps you as the head of treasury achieve your target. If I'm pitching to the IT team, I need to figure out what the IT teams or the digital transformations KPIs are mm. and align my messaging to that. But honestly, honestly speaking, with, such, with, with blockchain being such an ancient technology, you can't only pitch to the ultimate user. You need to convince the CEO, you need to convince the board, because let's say it goes bust. You think the head of IT or digital transformation is willing to lose his job over some startup's new revolutionary idea? Not a chance. Not a chance. So again, you have to align incentives as much as possible. You have to try and de-risk the project champion as much as possible. And that usually, so for example, when we did the Hilal Bank deal, we got it signed by 14 different departments. I didn't even know there was 14 departments, <laughs> or like 14 decision makers, I guess. And by doing so, it's more of a collective effort than saying, oh, this went to crap, Ahmed, it's Ahmed's fault. Yeah. Which is something that yeah. people working in larger organizations are often worried about. Okay. But in the UAE, there is the top-down support. So you have the Emirates blockchain strategy, you have the Dubai blockchain strategy, and you need someone to actually get those strategy into implementation and real-world real use cases. And that's, that's not very straightforward. Look at, look at the West, right? There was a, an article this week that came out about all the... There's 45 projects, pretty heavy blockchain usage projects, one by DTCC in the US which is the clearing organization for a lot of uh, securities in the US that is moving basically a lot of their transactions onto blockchain tech um, to create efficiency. You know, it's, it, there's going to be an explosion of enterprise use cases, I think primarily from the West and what will happen, especially yeah. in the Middle East. Unfortunately, because a lot of the cultures and organizations here are based on fear, uh, traditionally, 
Um, not just fear of losing their job, fear of losing their opportunity in the country, whatever it is, there's definitely not a culture of fear of failure. So nobody's willing to uh, fail. The young, the young new startups, yes, they'll do it. But if you take the big enterprises here, they're not willing to fail. So it goes perfect to what Talal said, which is remove the risk or remove the apparency of risk. It does not appear that there is going to be any risk on this other than our $50,000. And that's it. No publicity risk, no, no job risk, no whatever. Then remove all risk and even cover that in your presentation if that's what it takes. You just say, there is no risk. The risk is just your capital. And they can swallow capital. They yeah. can't swallow publicity or, or fear of losing their job or trust within the organization. What we found to also be effective and other B2B startups found to also be effective is going through the regulator. For example, if... We were uh, proudly part of the DIFC FinTech Accelerator, and when they refer us to a bank, internally the project champion would say, yeah, we got referred Gibral through DIFC. That automatically gives us the, I guess, confirmation that we are somewhat legit. Although our technology by itself should do that, but that's not how humans yeah. work. They need assurances. Yes. To be honest, also they need to go, well, Bob said it's okay, so we can do it. Yeah. And the fact is, I hate that because it should be the project that has its own merits. But you know what? This is the way the world works. If it, if yeah. it takes a, one guy to say, yeah, it looks good. Yeah, do it. And that's what gets you the deal. Go ahead and do it. It's all very much a networking game. All right, gentlemen, thank you so much for really like speaking about, about this topic in great detail, especially about Gibral and how it works. And as well, Nick being our first, I guess, guest host on Encrypted, which is also interesting. So first of all, Talal, is, if somebody wanted to be in contact with you, what, how could they keep Talal in touch? Talal at network or come see us at DIFC Fintech Hive or Telegram, LinkedIn. I mean, there's too many... Uh, too many channels. Too yeah. many channels, but I think email is still... Although I should be switching to like more hipster, I guess, uh, signal, signal and yeah. that type of stuff. <laughs> but email, email still works best. How about you, Nick? LinkedIn, I normally find is best. If you want to get hold of me, yeah, okay. just just Google my name. You'll find me on there. Great. We also have a couple of special announcements to be made soon on the podcast. And guys, if you still haven't rated or subscribed to the podcast, please make sure you do that. And also, we love your reviews. Keep them coming. We're slowly getting more reviews these days. It helps the show a lot, especially in, in the rankings of the podcast channel. So, yeah, thank you so much um, for coming to the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Ahmed. One final request. Go on. Can you include the link to the J Wallet on the podcast? <laughs> Anytime, mate. Habibi, I had to Habibi. Slip that through. Habibi. Habibi. I'll, I'll, even, I'll even share it on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I mean, LinkedIn. <laughs> All right. Great stuff. Thanks, Thanks guys. Us.